Well, we have been talking about evangelistic prayer. We're praying for all those who need to hear the gospel, to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit, to repent of their sins, to be saved. And we've had some specific applications of this focus. We're focused on the church for these weeks on praying for the lost. And the most important application has been for you as the the heads of your home to be praying with your family in evangelistic prayer. We're encouraging all of you to have a list of people who are lost, who don't know Christ, that we would like for you to, to pray through. And to help with that, a second application is that straight behind us in the sanctuary, in the hallway behind the sanctuary, we have a prayer board. It's easy to see because it says prayer on it. And you can uh, get a card. You can write names on that card, pin it up there. And we also encourage you to take names down, not physically take them, but write them down and uh, pray for those in these coming weeks. Our hope is that after five weeks of evangelistic prayer, it will become a habit in your life and uh, something that is part of your family. We've also seen that student ministries are focusing on evangelistic prayer as a ministry uh, alongside the rest of the church and that all of the small groups should be engaged in evangelistic prayer as well. So we're trying to push this so that God will be blessed uh, through our efforts by obeying him. And that's what we want to talk about today. Because this is the middle message of five that we're looking at in our text, which is 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8. And you can go ahead and turn there. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8. And today, we're looking at verses 3 and 4. And this really forms very much the mountain peak. This is the high point. It's an appropriate, I think, middle message in this series because it speaks to us about really the very highest motivation to pray for the lost. Yes, we are concerned for the lost for their own sake. In our humanity, we're probably more emotionally invested in the salvation of those that we know, that we're close to. But what we're going to see in verses 3 and 4 is really a different motivation. A different reason to pray evangelistic prayers for the lost. This is a motive that is much more heavenward. This is a motive that is much more Godward, God-centered. It presents to us a, a heart motive that is much more vertical than it is horizontal. What Paul will tell us this morning is that the goal of evangelistic prayer, primarily, chiefly, predominantly, is to please God. That's the goal, to give Him honor, to give him glory, which is pleasing to him. And so our focus this morning is on verses 2 and 3, but let's go ahead and read from 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, just to get into the the two verses we'll look at in detail. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What I'd like to do this morning is show you five ways to honor God through evangelistic prayer. Five ways to honor God through evangelistic prayer. This is not focused so much on the results of your prayer. This is just focused on the act of prayer itself. The first way to honor God through evangelistic prayer Honor God's character. Honor God's character. Paul says in verse 3, this is good. Now we should note here that the word this and then right after it, it, both refer to the evangelistic prayers. These are pronouns that 
tell us what, the, what was spoken of earlier. And you notice that the reason for evangelistic prayer, it's already getting away from merely a wish that the lost would be saved. We're getting away from that. The reasoning begins to focus now on doing what is good. The implication is here, of course, that God has deemed it good, therefore it is good. God here is asserting that prayer for the lost is magnanimous, it's virtuous, and to be honest with you, your own human consciences, you understand that, you get that, it makes sense. I've never heard a true believer in Christ say that praying for the lost is bad. Now, I have heard believers in Christ say that praying for certain lost people is harder than others. Some of you have even said, this person would make such a good Christian. No, he's not a Christian. He wouldn't make a good anything yet. And then others say, this person is really far from salvation. Can we be theologically accurate? Everyone who is lost is far from salvation at whatever level, until God brings them. But we're to remember, and this text helps us, that the reason lost people act like lost people is because they're lost. That's why. The person who's impossible to get along with is this way because he's lost. This is the one that you pray, Lord, save this person if you must. And that's, that's a, there's a hesitancy here. How about the person who consistently does wicked things? It's because she's lost. The person who shakes his fist at God does so because he's lost. You have to remember, and I have to remember, Romans 3, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes." So, of course, some people are harder to pray for than others because they act this out in more visible fashion. But a lost person is a lost person. There is no kind of lost, and there's no almost saved. And so we pray for them because God says this is good. And can I tell you this? Honestly, that alone ought to be reason enough for you to pray for the lost simply because it's good. You've formed evangelistic prayer lists for your homes. You're praying through those each week during this sermon series. But I know our human tendency, our human tendency is that we want success. We want to be able to say, look, I marked some off of my list because they got saved. And I understand that. And undoubtedly, God will hear those prayers. But for your encouragement, could I tell you this? Merely the act of praying for the lost is already deemed as good. A friend of mine who's a pastor in the Midwest, and I've told this story before, it's worth retelling. He loves to do street preaching. That's not my thing. I'm not good at it. He's good at it. And somebody asked him, I was in the room when he was asked this, somebody asked him, well, how many people do you lead to Christ? And he said, every one of them. I lead them all to the cross of Christ, and what God does with that is his business. There is glory to God in the proclamation to the lost, and there is glory given to God in prayers for the lost. It's already deemed as good. And since we know that God is good, here's the connection, then to pray evangelistically is to act like God. It is to be godly. It is to honor his character. 
Now, they say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but this goes far beyond that. To pray evangelistically is good, and therefore it puts you in the enviable position of literally imitating God. You're doing what God would do, and that should be the goal of every Christian. We remember that part of Paul's reasoning for commanding the church here at Ephesus through Timothy to pray for kings and all who are in high positions, part of his reasoning is that these are the last people we often want to pray for. These are the ones that we have a hesitancy and a sarcasm in our voice. Lord, please save this government official if it's even possible. Please save this person if you have to. And we even have, I had somebody tell me that if a certain politician got saved, I wouldn't know what to say to that person in heaven. You say, praise God that you made it. That's what you say. So Paul is telling them, stop being choosy. You don't get to choose who is saved. That is God's business. It's solely his business. It's his purview. Because we don't have the knowledge, we don't have the wisdom to pray only for the elect. We don't have that wisdom. There is one human being whoever successfully prayed specifically only for the elect, for all who will ever be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. John 17, 9, in his great high priestly prayer, Jesus said, I am not praying for the world. What does he mean by that? He means, I am not praying for the lost who are not chosen for salvation, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In that moment, Jesus prayed for all the elect. It's not our job to discern who the elect are. Our job is to pray and to proclaim. Why is this? Because it's good. It's intrinsically right. And it keeps us from a selfish motive. We pray for all the lost because it's good. Now, why is praying for the lost intrinsically right? Why is it intrinsically good? We're told in the next part of the text, it is pleasing to God. And that brings us to a second way to honor God through evangelistic prayer. We'll call this way, honor God's lordship. Honor God's lordship. Now, theologically, the lordship of God refers to the fact, the idea that he is sovereignly in control of all things, everything. Logically speaking, if you say God is Lord, that he's sovereign, and yet you say that there are certain things he's not fully controlling, then by definition, God is not truly Lord. God is not truly sovereign. I had somebody tell me recently, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I just believe that people choose salvation. Take your pick. You can't have it both ways. But here we get our evangelistic prayers on honoring the lordship of God, submitting to his sovereignty. Paul says it is pleasing. Again, it refers to evangelistic prayers. And I want to take some time in this idea of of pleasing God. First, we have to understand what it means to please God. And there's three helpful New Testament principles about pleasing God that I think will help us understand this. The first New Testament principle is that the unbeliever cannot please God. The unbeliever cannot please God. This is just foundational here for us. Romans 8 verse 8 says, Those who are in the flesh, meaning as opposed to those in the spirit who who are in Christ, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's literally nothing the lost can do which pleases God. Now, some of them might say, oh, that sounds a little harsh. Are you saying that when an unbeliever saves someone's life, that that doesn't please God? Not in the sense of giving merit to that person, 
Not in the sense of making God say, well, look, he saved someone's life. He's a little bit better than the other person. Does it please God when unbelievers do good things? Ultimately, no, it doesn't. Because this person saving another's life, for example, hasn't repented, hasn't acknowledged his own sin, and as a matter of fact, get this, might even see the act of saving someone else's life as an act of righteousness. When the fact is, there is none righteous. The unbeliever cannot please God in the same way that a murderer who is still free can't undo that crime by being a good citizen or volunteering in the community. The giant issue of the murder still has to be resolved. It's still hanging over the head. So the unbeliever cannot please God. We have to start there. There's a second New Testament principle that for the Christian then, pleasing God is accomplished through tangible obedience. Pleasing God is accomplished through tangible obedience. This is only for the Christian. We don't please God in order to gain salvation. As those who have already received salvation, we give tangible obedience out of love because it pleases God. And it's very tangible. It's very practical. It's very day-to-day. For example, 1 Timothy 5 verse 4 tells family members of a widow, learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents For this is pleasing in the sight of God. What's that saying? Hey, kids, if you have a widowed mom, give her some money. That's practical. Another example, Paul told the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, that pleasing God is achieved in their day-to-day, what he calls walk with the Lord, the day-to-day obedience. And so that second principle there is that we please God through tangible obedience There's one more principle, a third one. This is related to our topic at hand, that then part of tangible obedience is a loyalty to the true gospel. Part of tangible obedience is a loyalty to the true gospel. Paul said in Galatians 1 verse 10 that by preaching the singular true gospel of salvation in Christ alone by faith alone, he was pleasing God. It wasn't about the people, it was about pleasing God. In fact, Paul said that his preaching is not to please man. It is not to tickle the fancy of men, but to please God. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God. In other words, the people listening at that moment are sort of irrelevant to the equation. It is about the speaker pleasing God. And so this makes sense to us. You have these three principles. The unbeliever cannot please God. For the believer, pleasing God is accomplished through tangible obedience. And part of tangible obedience is a loyalty to the true gospel. That fits exactly with what we're saying here. That the fact that it's pleasing in the sight of God to obey him by praying evangelistically is part of your loyalty to the true gospel. It just makes sense. And in fact, part of your loyalty to the true gospel is expressed right here in this monumentally important label for God. Evangelistic prayer is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. This is a fundamental ingredient of the true gospel, that God is the Savior. This is so important, so key for us, because it reminds us that God is the originator of our salvation, not us. Philippians 1.28 says your salvation is from God. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says that God has destined us to, quote, obtain salvation 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's from God. It's not from us. God is the Lord over all, which includes being Lord over who is saved and when and in what circumstances. It's all Him. Listen, if I could just make a little poke at you here. If you truly, truly believe that it is the free will of a human being that leads them to salvation, then why would you pray for the lost? Why would you pray for the lost? Because someone who says, I believe in the total free will of humanity to come to faith in Christ, and yet prays for salvation for the lost person has just admitted to being a closet Calvinist. Because what have you done? You have hedged your bet that that person's free will won't come through. And instead you've said, God, can you intervene? Welcome to Calvinism. And so your evangelistic prayers bend the knee in homage and honor to the lordship of God, our Savior. It acknowledges that he's Lord, that no one may be saved outside the decree of God, that Paul meant it when he proclaimed in Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so evangelistic prayer is a way to honor God's lordship. He's Lord over salvation. We honor his character. We honor his lordship. There's a third way evangelistic prayer honors God. Honor God's general call. Honor God's general call. That's a theological term, but we'll define it here. The general call of God to salvation speaks of the fact that God calls all men to himself. Everyone. That he continues to spread the gospel, the knowledge of Christ all over the world. The general call of God to salvation is accomplished through the proclamation of the gospel by faithful men in the pulpits of faithful churches and by you as faithful church members in your day-to-day lives. That's how the general call happens. This general call of God to salvation can be seen here in this broad phrase in verse 4 that God desires all people to be saved. Now I'm going to stay broad and general for a few minutes here Let's just camp out on the desire of God. Before we dig into the all people part, we need to honor God's general call. And before we jump immediately to the the clear fact that God is not going to save everyone, we need to look at God's heart. We need to look at his motivation to give a general call to all of humanity. Because the question would be, if God's not going to save everyone, why does he give a call to everyone? We're going to spend some time in different parts of our Bible. I want you to see this, some key concepts on the desire of God, the general call. So I'm going to have you turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel 18, I'll give you a moment. I cheated and used a bookmark. So you can find Ezekiel. And while you're finding Ezekiel 18, let me tell you what's happening. Ezekiel 18, we see God responding to Israel. And what he's responding to is the wrong idea among the Jews, that the present generation, those who were alive at that moment, had to somehow atone for the sins of the previous generation. And he issues clear invitations to be personally, in this generation, cleansed of sin without regard to what their fathers had done. Ezekiel 18, verse 21, God says, But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. God is righteous, yet he's still loving. He's just, yet he's still merciful. 
judgment, of course, is a necessity based on his holiness, but what delights God is the repentance of the wicked. And, and yes, absolutely, God is glorified in the punishment of the wicked, but let me ask you this. Do you ever see in Scripture a celebration over the punishment of the wicked? To my knowledge, you don't. But you do see celebrations over the repentance of the wicked. Jesus said in Luke fifteen ten, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Ezekiel eighteen twenty one, by the way, defines repentance in great terms, turning away from sin, turning to God. That's repentance. Look at verse twenty three. This is God speaking. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Verse 32, the the very end of the chapter. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. That's the heart of God. That's the general call of God. Go over a few chapters to Ezekiel 33. In Ezekiel 33 here, the problem is, is that Israel thinks that she's gone too far into sin to be saved. It's too late for them. It's too late for those individuals. And so God gives assurance. Verse 10 of Ezekiel 33. And you, son of man, he's speaking to Ezekiel the prophet, and you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you have said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? And so God reassures them. Verse 11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Now we won't turn there. But in the book of Isaiah, we get some of the greatest invitations from God in all of the Bible. Isaiah one eighteen, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isaiah 45.22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That's a general call. Isaiah 55.1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. The offer of salvation to all who hear the gospel is a true offer. It is a genuine offer. It is a real offer. But those who reject this offer do so on the basis of their own depravity. They're self-condemned by their own sin. The Lord Jesus Christ himself issued a general call to people he already sovereignly knew would reject him. In John chapter 7, on the last day of the great Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus issued this general call. He said, beginning in verse 37 of John 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And yet almost everyone in that very crowd to whom he was preaching would be shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. And yet he calls them. Evangelistic prayer honors God's general call in that it reflects his heart. That if God issues this invitation to all humanity, then who are we to restrict our prayers to those that we think somehow deserve salvation? 
God issued this general call. He takes great pleasure in the salvation of the lost. He does not take pleasure in the judgment of the wicked, though his wrath is glorified and his holiness is magnified. But he issues a general call. Turn back with me to 1 Timothy 2 now. And so in evangelistic prayer, we honor God's general call to salvation. We don't minimize or ignore the great compassion of God to make salvation known to the whole world. There is, however, a vast, vast difference between God's general call and our fourth way evangelistic prayer honors God. We would say honor God's specific call. Honor God's specific call. Jesus said in Matthew twenty two fourteen, for many are called, but few are what? Chosen. The specific call of God refers to the internal call, the efficacious, the effective call of God unto salvation, which is 100% effective. Paul describes the specific call in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And just so we're clear, we've said this before, but I never know who remembers and who doesn't. There is no category of person who wishes he could be saved, but he can't be saved because he's not elect. That category does not exist. All who are saved are of the elect, and all who are of the elect will be saved. The saved are saved because God is the Savior and chooses to save them. And listen carefully, the lost are lost because of their own sin And they're already rightly condemned. They've willfully refused to repent. We already saw that in Ezekiel 18. But how do we understand the first part here, verse 4, that God desires all people to be saved? How do we understand this? Who are the all people? Well, the short answer is those he's actually chosen for salvation. And there is here what's called an appositional phrase, not an oppositional, but an appositional phrase. It's a phrase which is synonymous, it's parallel to the previous phrase. And so we see who desires all people to be saved, that's the first phrase. Here's the appositional phrase, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And we'll talk more about that in a moment, but for now, just understand that this is saving knowledge. It is knowledge unto salvation. This is a really important point. Because theologians for centuries have made mistakes about the identity of all people. And so we need to dig into this. So I'm going to give you the longer answer. The question we need to deal with here is what is the meaning of all? Is it self-defining as always meaning 100% of the thing that's being referenced? We can clearly understand from Scripture that all people will not be saved. The the presence of judgment in hell makes that obvious. And so that presents a puzzle to us. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So what does this mean? Does it mean that God desires this, but he just wasn't capable of bringing it about? Does it mean that God desires this, but he emotionally pines for the people that he will have to reluctantly send to hell because they rejected the gospel? Or maybe it means that man's free will intervenes in some cases. And while God wishes all to be saved, he gives men the total freedom to choose Christ or reject Christ. So while he wishes all could be saved, mankind actually prevents that. Is it any of those? 
Well, I would contend that especially when all is referring to the saving work of Christ among men, all has to be interpreted in the context in which it occurs. All can refer to every individual without exception, but often it refers to almost every individual or part of a group. I'll give you an example. Husbands and wives, you have often said things like, you never listen to me. What does never mean? It just means sometimes, right? If you never listened, you wouldn't have gotten married in the first place. Let me give you some clear examples. I want to nail this down very, very hard for us. I'm going to read some to you, but then we'll turn to one text in particular. Here's the first example. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Did the disciples say, oh, great, every human being on planet Earth is going to hate my guts from now on if I preach the gospel? No, Jesus didn't mean that everyone would hate the disciples. What he did mean is that non-Christians from every walk of life would hate them. In fact, just a quick reading of the book of Acts finds that both Jews and Gentiles resisted the gospel, persecuted the apostles. You find blue-collar craftsmen in, the book of, in Ephesus in the book of Acts hating the disciples. You find mid-level government workers such as magistrates hating the disciples. And you find those in the highest authority, governors and kings, hating the disciples. So all doesn't mean every single person. It means every single type of person. Another example, 1 Timothy 6.10, a, a basic Greek rendering says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, the ESV, the English Standard Version, helps us by providing the translation, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That helps us understand. That obviously, the love of money will cause many forms of evil, but it can't be that money causes all evil. Another example, Jesus said in John twelve thirty two, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. But Jesus also said in John six forty four, no one can come to me unless the Father who sends me sent me draws him. Put that together with Jesus' prayer in John seventeen six, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me. How do you put all this together? When Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, what he's saying is, is that as the Father has drawn a certain number of people and Jesus will draw all of them. Every single person God the Father chose for salvation will be saved. Now here's a challenging little passage. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, this has some interesting aspects to it which will help us work through this little theological puzzle here. And we want to engage our minds and think through the Word of God. Romans 3, we're very familiar with verse 23, and probably some of you have this memorized. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now stop right there for a moment and don't look at verse 24, it'll ruin the surprise. We all get that. Oh, yeah, I believe in the, in the doctrine of total depravity. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That makes sense. That we would clearly say, in that case, all refers to everybody. But we have to keep reading. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Hang on just a minute. Does this mean that in the same way that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that all are justified 
by grace as a gift. Is that what that means? I'm dealing with this because this is a major argument of those who believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for the sins of every single human being. We do not hold to that. And I'll tell you why. If that's the case, if Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for the sins of every single human being, that means that the payment for sin is only potential. Since clearly not everyone will be saved. And if payment for sin is only potential, that means that the cross only hypothetically paid for your sin. Let me ask you a question. If you're a business owner and the customer writes you a check and as he's handing you the check, he says, potentially and hypothetically, there's enough money in my account to cover this check. Are you going to say that's okay? No, of course not. And that's not what scripture says about our salvation. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a finished payment. Verse 10 of Romans 5 says, We were reconciled to God by the death of his son while we were enemies. Now, what does this have to do with Romans 3, 23 and 24? All have sinned and are justified by his grace. Now, you need to stay with me here. Engage your minds. There's some puzzle pieces here. The first puzzle piece, at the beginning of verse 24, the and is a traditional translation and the comma at the end of verse 23 is a translation judgment call. But in the Greek text, there is no and, and there can just as rightly be a period at the end of verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, period. That's the first part of the puzzle. Second puzzle piece. The verb translated are justified is, and you don't have to remember this, but it's a present passive participle. Say that fast three times. It means that it can be translated in the present tense as somebody else, that is God, doing the justifying. So we may translate it, put all that together, being justified. And that's the beginning of a sentence. Being justified by his grace as a gift. And so it starts a new sentence. Third puzzle piece. Keep all this in your head here. The rest of verses 24 then all of 25 and all of 26 is a huge digression which explains very quickly how justification works. In English, we would put it in parentheses. And so it would be like this. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Close parentheses. That's how we would do it in English. One more puzzle piece. Once the parenthesis is done, we get to the point of Paul's sentence which begins being justified by his grace as a gift verse 27 then what becomes of our boasting his point is that if all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God then we being justified by his grace as a gift have no cause to boast because God and God alone is the cause of our salvation does that make sense Turn to Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's clear. All means all in this case. Verse 18 then. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, 
So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. What does this mean? Well, the context shows us clearly the first half of verse 18. All does speak of all men. We have many other passages in Scripture that confirms the the universal sinfulness of mankind. But the second all, that Jesus' death on the cross, the one act of righteousness, leads to justification and life for all men. This should be understood to mean leads to justification and life for all men who are in Christ. In other words, all who are in Christ will have life. This is exactly the same idea as 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Can I put it this way? Let's make this easy. All who are in Christ will be resurrected someday. Every single one of them. Jesus won't lose one of you. That's important. Here's a theological firestorm. Turn to Romans 11. Romans 11. Darren read the easy to understand part at the end. Look at verse 31. By the way, Paul is speaking here of the official nation of Israel who has for now rejected Christ since the time of Jesus. So here's who he's speaking of is Israel. Verse 31. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now, why is this so important? Our Arminian brothers, those who believe in complete free will, they would say that this shows that God's mercy is just as wide and as expansive as the disobedience of mankind. That just as every man has disobeyed, so every man may be saved. Now, why do they have that strange interpretation? Well, that's, of course, to protect the sacred cow of human free will as the ultimate determiner of salvation, not the sovereignty of God. But actually, to use these verses as a proponent of human free will is ridiculous. Look at the subject of both verbs in verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he, that is God, may have mercy on all. God is the one who consigns disobedience. God is the one who has mercy. Do you see any room for human free will in there? None. There's none. And as in all the other verses with the double all, so to speak, Everyone must be taken in the context. What's the larger context? The larger context is a very clear unit of thought in Romans, which is Romans 9, 10, and 11. And what's one of Paul's major, major arguments in Romans 9, 10, and 11? Go back with me to Romans 9, verse 21. This is one of his major arguments. Chapter 9, verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience, look at this, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. By the way, grammatically speaking, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction are self prepared they've prepared themselves for destruction grammatically speaking the vessels of mercy prepared for god's grace have been prepared by god to receive god's grace god is responsible for salvation man is responsible for their own condemnation 
Does all always mean all? No. I think we've proven that all must be interpreted with the context of the passage and with sound theology derived from that. Now, what does this mean for 1 Timothy 2.4? What does it mean there? We can turn back there. What it means is that it cannot be that God has decreed that all people will be saved. That cannot be the case. This flies in the face of many, many passages. To the contrary, Matthew seven twenty three. Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Second Thessalonians two thirteen. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. And for that reason, we're thankful. Second Timothy 1, 9, that God saved us, called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, which, but because of his own purpose and grace. Listen to this which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. If you believe in free will, this is a difficult verse because according to the Bible, God gave you grace before the world was formed, before the ages began. You didn't get saved because at one moment in time, you made an intellectual decision to follow Christ. You were saved because God decided you would be countless eons ago. So it cannot be that God has decreed that all people will be saved. If that's the case, then God isn't powerful enough to carry out his own decree. And I don't know about you, but I can't serve a God who can't make something happen. So how do we understand that God desires all people to be saved? Context, context, context. The biblical context here is that the all people at the end of verse 1 is further defined as kings and all who are in high positions. What does this mean? It means pray for all people, including and not excluding kings and people in authority. In other words, Paul is thinking in terms of categories of people. Why are you to pray for all categories of people? Because God desires all kinds of people to be saved. All kinds. Now, I hate to tell you this, but we could have saved a whole lot of time Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 because everything I just said is contained in one verse. But it wouldn't be as much fun if we only did one verse. This summarizes the entire thought we've just explored. 1 Timothy 4 verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Especially means particularly specifically those who believe. So why in 1 Timothy 2 do you have all and all and all? Why do you have this? Because the Bible wants you to know that if you are in Christ, your salvation is certain. You will not be left behind. You will not sin your way out of God's grace. Here's a beautiful all for you. John 17 What a beautiful all. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, meaning he's going to the cross. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. It is good and it is delightful to be part of all, is it not? God issued a general call the truth of the gospel proclaimed and God issues a specific call to all that he's chosen. We pray evangelistically to honor God's general call that he doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
though he does receive glory, and we pray evangelistically to honor God's specific call to connect the elect with the gospel. And he has not told us who that is. One more way to honor God and please God through evangelistic prayer. Honor God's word. Honor God's word. 1 Timothy 2, again, we see the specific call to salvation in the rest of verse 4, that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What does this mean? This means that the means of salvation is to hear the truth of the gospel and to believe it personally. And our prayers for the lost are prayers that they would hear the truth and believe. And this is very simply explained in Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so the best thing you can do in trying to lead somebody to faith is don't use your own logic. Don't use your own powers of persuasion. Read them the Bible. Tell them what the Bible says. What is this knowledge of the truth? Well, this is specifically of saving knowledge of the truth, gospel truth. In fact, it's used three other times in First and Second Timothy and in Titus to mean every time the true knowledge brings about salvation. Second Timothy 2.25, a knowledge of the truth which grants repentance. Second Timothy 3.7 speaks of those who gain information, but they never gain saving knowledge. They are, quote, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Titus 1 verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. You cannot be saved without knowing the truth. Therefore, we proclaim the gospel truth and we pray for the elect to be connected to the truth. I am absolutely amazed that cultural Christianity seems to work as hard as possible to make the truth palatable until it no longer resembles the truth. There is no salvation without the knowledge of the truth. There is no salvation without the knowledge that God is furious with your sin, that you have violated, desecrated, and disregarded the holiness and the righteousness of God. There is no salvation without the truth that God is perfectly just and you're rightly condemned for your sin. There is no salvation without the truth that since you can never in all of eternity undo one single sin that you've ever committed, that makes that offense against God an eternal offense and so therefore the punishment must be eternal as well. There is no salvation without the truth that God who is just is also gracious And he made a way to satisfy his justice and to extend his grace at the same time. So that when the right hand of God's justice was plunging toward you with the sword of his judgment, the left hand of his grace and mercy restrained that judgment and deflected it to plunge into the heart of Christ instead. That's why it's so important that the church is the pillar and the foundation of what? The truth. Yes, the Bible can speak for itself, but God has assigned us the glorious task of knowing the truth ourselves and pointing others to this truth. Can I say this? We're often so concerned about being a carrier of coronavirus. How about being concerned about being a carrier of the truth? Evangelistic prayer that is specific, that is precise, rather than saying things like, God, get a hold of so-and-so, and that's fine. He understands, the Holy Spirit translates, what he means is proclaim the gospel to him and have him repent of his sin. But how about you be more precise? 
How about you pray prayers which honor God's word like, Father, give so-and-so the opportunity to hear the truth and know and believe the gospel, to believe that she is a sinner in need of a savior, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life and without whom no one will come to you. That's an evangelistic prayer. We honor God's word by being the pillar and foundation of the truth, not by praying platitudes and general phrases. So what's the point of praying prayers which honor God's character and his lordship, his general call, his specific call, and his word? What's the point? The point is, is that the ultimate purpose of the salvation of people and the ultimate purpose, the ultimate reason for our prayers for the salvation of people is that God would be pleased, that God would be honored, that God would be glorified. Listen to some portions of Psalm 67. You don't have to turn there, but this is sometimes called the the missionary psalm or the missions psalm because it speaks of spreading the word to all the nations. Psalm 67, 1 and 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. What a great prayer. Verse 4 says, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Verses 6 and 7, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless you. God shall bless us. But the point of Psalm 67 is not just that God is gracious and has blessed us with salvation. The point is not just let the nations be glad and sing for joy. The point is not merely God, our God, shall bless us. Those are the byproducts. Those are the results of the real point. And the real point is Psalm 67, 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Verse 5, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And the end of the psalm says, let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let the peoples praise you. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Is salvation horizontal as much as it is vertical? No. You're just a byproduct of God's plan to glorify himself. The salvation of men is meant to create an eternal world of worshipers. These are worshipers who point all glory to God. They point all credit to God. They point all fame and admiration and triumph and honor. It all goes to him. The worshipers of eternity will ascribe to God magnificence and splendor and beauty and wonder and grandeur and brilliance and light and exaltation and awe and radiance. You know, the Bible speaks of our salvation as a crown. And the crown of our salvation ultimately becomes a gift that we give back to God in the form of ascribing to Him all glory and all honor and all power. In fact, we see this in the church in heaven pictured as 24 elders in Revelation 24. We see this with them. The salvation that they received is about God's glory. Revelation 4, verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. 
Why should you pray for the lost? So that there might be more to cast their crowns before God. That's the reason. My prayer for you is that you'll pray for the lost simply because this is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is pleasing to you. I'm thankful for our church, Lord. I'm thankful for Grace Bible Church and how faithful they have been to put dozens of names up on our prayer board, to write them down, to pray in their homes. And while we deeply yearn for and desire that all that we pray for would be saved, and we'll we'll boldly ask for that, our prayer this day is that we would pray for the lost because this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. May you be honored. May you receive all glory. May you receive all adulation, all praise, all credit, all fame. May your fame spread to all the world for you are infinitely and imminently worthy. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.